Welcome to this Hardwick podcast. My name is uh, PJ Kirby QC and I'm joined by my colleague Robin Dunn. Uh, And in this podcast we are going to be discussing some of the main cost decisions of 2019 and also giving you a few hints, all members of the legal profession, uh, about keeping us all happy and keeping us in the money, i.e. how to maximise our return of costs. So 2019, in one sense, has been a pretty exciting year for cost law, if that's not uh, a contradiction in terms. But anyway, Robin, so far as you're concerned, what were the cost highlights of 2019 for you? Well, I think the the main cost highlight was the Herbert uh, and HH law decision in the Court of Appeal, the one that we... Well, we both know about that one. We're both involved in. We were both involved in it, so um, perhaps you just... Tell us what the case was about. Well, that was uh, a case concerned with the level of success fees in low-value road traffic accidents. And uh, since LASPO came into force, a lot of uh, firms who deal predominantly with low-value RTAs were setting their success fees at 100% across the board without taking into account any risk. And the success fee was set at 100%, but then there was a 25% cap on damages, which the firms in question felt justified the 100% uplift in all their cases. So the issue here was whether it was reasonable to set a success fee across the board or whether there should be an individualised success fee set in respect of the risk of the actual case. Yeah, I mean, it was quite interesting that the uh, evidence in the case was fairly straightforward and put out there, which was that um, it was their business model, that they would apply 100% whatever the particular risks of that particular case. And I have seen in a number of cases, clients being told that the success fee is 25%. Now, what they mean by that is that it will be capped at 25% of a particular element of the recovered damages, uh, whereas in fact the success fee is 100%, but then is capped at 25% um, of the recovery. Anyway, what was the outcome and why is it important? Well, it's important because the main thrust of the solicitor's argument in general, uh, as you say, was that this 25% cap essentially protected the clients, so there was no need for the court to interfere. But it was equally important because it's all to do with the uh, presumptions in the rules, and the presumption in the rules in a Solicitors, Solicitors Act assessment are that if the costs were incurred with the express or implied approval of the client, they are deemed to have been reasonably incurred. And so what HH Law argued in this case was that the mere fact that the client had essentially signed the retainer and approved the 100% uplift, that was enough for the court to say, well, there has been uh, consent or, or approval and therefore they shouldn't interfere. And of course, what we argued, or rather what you argued, argued in court and I sat behind you, Um, what we argued was that uh, there had to be informed consent. Yes, I think it's important to make the point that the, the case was a Solicitors Act assessment. So this is where the client is challenging um, the fees that their own solicitor has charged them. This is not to do with uh, the recovery of premiums that used to be possible. Um, in litigation, but rather challenges by the client to their own solicitor's uh, fees. So what the consequences of this 
could be uh, is that there could well be a large number of claims now being brought by uh, clients who succeeded in their claims for uh, damages, but who had a larger proportion than was reasonable deducted from those damages. So it's probably not a decision that has necessarily uh, gone down particularly well with some solicitors, it'd be fair to say. No, well, <laughs> that's probably an understatement. Um, and one has to have some sympathy for those solicitors because when LASPO came in and the fixed costs were reduced to a very, very modest levels, many of them looked at models and considered how best to, to deal with these cases. But certainly it was it was the Mrs. Herbert's view um, and those who, instru- who she instructed that, that it was just unreasonable to apply across the board 100%. Um, and interestingly, the Court of Appeal, in terms of the informed consent, in terms of who's, who has the burden of showing that informed con- approval was given, uh, they made it clear that once the client has raised that in points of dispute, it's then for the solicitor, so the burden passes to the solicitor at that point, to show that any approval was informed, so yes. there was informed consent. And this informed consent point is therefore going to apply not just to uplifts, but to any particular element of the uh, fees that are effectively challenged as to whether informed consent was given for that particular element. And there's going forward and looking at next year and solicitor-client disputes, there are a number of cases which are looking at Section 74 bracket 3 of the Act, which essentially says that unless the client has explicitly agreed, uh, you cannot charge them more than would be recovered in the county court. So it limits you to whatever fixed costs you would get back. Yes, that's a section that um, uh, rather a large number of uh, practitioners, be they solicitors or members of the bar, seem to be totally ignorant of. (laughs) Yes, that's right. And this informed consent point in respect of that is important because the wording in 46.9 of the CPR is slightly different but there is an argument and there will be a number of appeals involved in one of them but there will be a number of appeals early next year as to the question of whether telling the client that you're seeking to recover greater than the cost they could recover into parties is is enough or whether in fact as in Herbert informed consent is required in those cases as well. So we may well see the the idea or the concept of informed consent being applied on a much wider scale in these solicitor-client uh, matters. Yeah. Now, we didn't actually win on every single point. Well, I suppose... Thanks suppose. for bringing that up, but yeah. yes. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose I should say I didn't. Uh, if, if you're, if you're going to give me credit for doing the advocacy, then... Uh, uh, I should say I didn't win on every single point. Um, and there was the issue of the um, insurance uh, premium itself uh, and the quantum of that premium and whether that could be challenged. And And the effect of the decision appears to have been that when um, a solicitor takes out a, an ATE policy, or strictly speaking, when the client takes out an ATE policy, Uh, that the premium for that is not regarded as a solicitor's disbursement and therefore can't be challenged on a Solicitor's Act uh, assessment. Is that your understanding as well? Well, yes, and and, and, uh, the the Court of Appeal gave to clients with one hand but took away with the other because while they uh, approved or or upheld the success fee being reduced to 15%, they did indeed say that um, an ATE policy is not a solicitor's disbursement. And at a stroke, they then have ensured that no client can char- can challenge an ATE policy once it's uh, 
been uh, agreed and, and they have taken it out. And in fact, going further than that, ATE policies shouldn't be in a solicitor and client bill because they're not a solicitor's disbursement. So they will form no part going forward of solicitor-client actions. That sits rather uncomfortably, I would say, with the idea of informed consent in respect of the success fee because if the Court of Appeal are suggesting that there needs to be some sort of protection for clients in terms of informed consent when it comes to uplifts, it is perhaps surprising that there is no protection at all for a lay client who would have no real understanding or knowledge of the ATE market when it comes to whatever's recommended to them. Other than presumably they'd have to bring a separate action in the small claims court alleging, which they wouldn't sure wouldn't want to do, alleging misrepresentation or something similar on the part of the solicitor. Well, yes, that would be their only option. And that, of course, would be problematic because these policies are modest in general terms, although they're not modest in the context of the damages. And as you say, it would be a small claims action. They are unlikely to get solicitors to represent them in that, so they would have to do it themselves. Anyway, we probably ought to move on from Herbert. There have been other cost decisions uh, this year, and in fact, I noticed that you've been in quite a few. Um, Any that you... uh ones that you've been in that you want to highlight? I mean, that are important, not just because you were in them, but... Well, I, w- I, w- I won't list all of the ones, um, but the, the, I've, there is a... Uh, one of the more important ones is the uh, Ainsworth and Stewart's Law case, which is to do with uh, striking out of points of dispute that weren't uh, properly formulated. And that's going to the Court of Appeal in February of next year, Uh, I'm instructed in that case. And that will have implications not just because it was a very robust piece of case management by the senior cost judge, but also in terms of whether precedent G and the very generic points of dispute are appropriate in complex or large-scale cases, and whether cost draftsmen and cost lawyers run a risk if they do draft very generic points of dispute of having those struck out. Um, there's also the question for the Court of Appeal is whether precedent G is relevant or applies at all to solicitor-client assessments because of the difference in solicitor-client and inter-parties assessments, namely that the client in solicitor-client assessments has seen the entirety of the file. Right. Well, that seems to me that is going to be a fairly important decision um, and obviously one we'll look forward to hearing about in February and maybe we'll end up doing another podcast on now, I know you'd want to ask me what's my um, uh, highlight Just of the year. Yes. Of course you were. Um, uh, I think probably my cost highlight of the year was actually appearing in the Competition Appeal Tribunal. First, because I'd never appeared in the Competition Appeal Tribunal before, uh, and it was an interesting uh, venue, and it was packed with about 120 lawyers sitting there because of all the uh, number of uh, parties uh, who were represented. Uh, but because it uh, was a very important decision where um, one of the parties uh, sought to challenge uh, the legality, in effect, of all third-party funding agreements uh, by suggesting that the damages-based agreements regulations uh, applied to third-party funding and that as nearly every third-party funding agreement was not compliant with those regulations, that therefore they were unenforceable. Now, as the... uh, chairman of the or president of the tribunal said obviously the consequences if that argument was correct would be uh, catastrophic to the uh, third party funding uh, industry Uh, and I'm pleased to say that um, 
we were successful in defending that argument. But it was not an easy ride. And indeed, um, they have sought permission to appeal from the Court of Appeal. So at, as things stand at the moment, there continues to be a possible threat to third-party funding uh, in that that case may go to the uh, Court of Appeal. And at the same time, there was a decision in the TCC, which came out, in fact, 18 days before the Competition Appeal Tribunal decision, uh, where uh, a deputy judge, in, on very different facts, actually found that a third-party funder, who was also, in effect, running the litigation, was covered by the DBA regulations. So there is some inconsistency between those uh, two decisions uh, that may, in due course, uh, have to be considered by the Court of Appeal, but hopefully not uh, in relation to the trucks litigation, which was the case that I was involved in. In terms of uh, if the Court of Appeal give permission, and I assume there's no decision from the Court of Appeal as to permission, but if they did, that would really put the third-party funding market in, in this country in a state of abeyance, really, because going forward they would have to comply with the DBA regulations if they could, but all of the ones that are currently in place, would be would they be subject to or, or potentially well, subject to this ruling? Uh, th they would, um, were the decision to go the other way, um, and therefore uh, they would have to consider uh, redrafting their uh, agreements, which would be a massive task, uh, and indeed would be quite difficult to make sure that they did comply. Uh, I uh, uh, Another thing that could happen uh, is that draft uh, amended DBA regulations have been produced, uh, which make clear in terms that third-party funding agreements are not damages-based uh, agreements. Now, it could be said, well, why, why did they have to say that? Um, the answer from those who drafted the uh, regulations was in order to remove any doubt on this argument. But unfortunately, those regulations are unlikely to come into force uh, until at least this time next year. Uh, they haven't yet had parliamentary approval, and goodness knows what will happen, obviously, now post the election. Um, let's just quickly move on um, to consider any other leading cost cases in uh, 2019. Where are we now on proportionality? Have we had any guidance on that? Well, we still haven't had a huge amount of guidance, but the closest we got was the Western Stockport's uh, NHS Foundation Trust uh, case, which was the Court of Appeal looking at post-LASPO clinical negligence ATE premiums. And this is a long-running dispute between the NHSR and uh, clinical negligence solicitors and those who insure the claimants. Really, this was, in effect, an updating of the Rogers and Merthyr Didville challenge right to block-rated premiums, and it was a question of whether in the post-LASPO environment uh, paying parties would have any greater success in challenging bespoke premiums uh, than they did pre-LASPO. And unfortunately, they haven't had any greater success no. at all um, because, in essence, the Court of Appeal have found that ATE premiums and, for example, court fees are unavoidable costs of litigation, and therefore proportionality arguments don't apply to them. So just as in Rogers, one didn't apply uh, proportionality to uh, a premium once it was considered necessary, now, because of the concept of an unavoidable cost, it means that avenue of, of challenges is now closed. 
So the challenges, though, will continue to be made to those of us who are otherwise being paid, uh, not on a fixed basis and not on an unavoidable basis, namely solicitors and barristers. We're the ones who are going to have to take the cut. Well, absolutely. And, and in terms of th- this, this litigation in terms of challenging AT won't go away because the NHS are, are very keen on it. But one is back to the position, as I say, the pre-LASPO position of if it's a bespoke premium, one can challenge it on the basis of uh, the risk rating, etc. But if it's a, if it's a block rated premium, then, then the challenges are really, really difficult. Okay. Um, I just want to uh, deal just for uh, a couple of minutes with uh, any tips you might have to help both solicitors and barristers with regard to matters such as cost budgeting and the recoverability uh, of uh, the maximum amount of costs that we can. Um, So far as cost budgeting is concerned, um, uh, we've had a number of decisions during the course of the year and about a year ago about cost budgeting, including Urenki and the Ministry of uh, Defence, repeating the point that uh, the phases, uh, one gives a figure for the phase as a whole, and you shouldn't uh, just be, you shouldn't rule on hourly rates or the number of hours that are going to be incurred. Uh, There's a certain element of uh, intellectual dishonesty involved in that, because of course all judges inevitably have to look at those, but when they come to actually fix the budget, mustn't do so by reference to a specific hourly rate or a specific number of hours. Uh, and indeed, we saw uh, that point come up in a slightly different context in a case called East Eye and Malhotra Property Investments uh, recently, where uh, an appeal against a uh, cost budgeting decision uh, was that the uh, judge should have allowed more for the trial phase um, in order to allow for leading counsel. Um, and effectively, that appeal which I have to say I thought was always fairly hopeless, Um, that appeal um, uh, was uh, uh, indeed dismissed on the basis that the court said, well, a figure has been fixed for that particular phase. I think, yes, I think the courts have now, uh, the senior courts have now made it absolutely clear how one approaches budgets, and it is not about the constituent parts, it is about giving parties are some and it's up to them how they use it they can use whatever fiona they like but they have a total figure uh, and this idea or this argument that one can break it down further which was what a lot of paying parties tried to argue uh, seems to have have finally been finished off by these judgments i suppose on cost budgeting we ought to make the point that there have been some changes in october which some people seem to uh, uh, have not noticed Um, perhaps one of the most important ones being that council's brief fee now comes in the trial preparation stage and not trial. So the only bit that will come in trial is the um, refreshers for council. Yes, that's right. And um, there's a a slight difficulty there because it doesn't appear that experts' fees have changed. Uh, So if experts are attending the trial and are having uh, the fee for the first day and then refresher fees, in much the same way as council, they're still in the trial phase, it looks like, from the guidance. But certainly in terms of council, we now have the brief fee in the trial prep phase. It would be interesting to see how that, how that, how that's dealt with at assessment when the trial phase is incurred, the brief fee is incurred, but then the trial is settled and abated brief fees, for example, are payable under the, under the retainer with council. So the courts will have to look at that quite carefully, I think. Okay. Now, 
Um, for you and I, because we're recording this uh, just before Christmas, uh, goodness knows when uh, anyone's going to listen to this, but uh, have you got any uh, little Christmas stocking tips um, so far as uh, cost law are concerned, um, so far as budgeting and recovery is concerned? And we just quickly go through these as just bullet points, I think. Well, uh, in terms of just general cost law, I still uh, am concerned that some solicitors retainers generally uh, are open to challenge uh, on a solicitor client assessment because they're not drafted carefully so I would recommend all solicitors go back and look at all their retainers and if necessary get counsel's advice on those. Um, in terms of cost budgeting it's really a question of making it at the forefront of your mind during the litigation and making sure that council who attends understands costs and the budget is set on a realistic basis and is looked at on a monthly basis. So revi revising budgets if there have been significant developments? Yes, keeping a, uh, making sure that there is a reminder to keep an eye on the budget because inevitably the litigation takes over and two, three years down the line when it comes to the end of the matter, you might find that the budget isn't, uh, isn't required, isn't giving you what's required. Yeah. Uh, I mean, one tip I often give is that if at all possible, always consider in a case whether there is any chance of getting indemnity costs because then you're not going to be bound by the budget when it comes to the assessment. So that includes the tactical use of claimants' uh, Part 36 offers. Uh, and also perhaps indemnity costs just for particular periods of the litigation, uh, if, for instance, there's been uh, conduct outside the norm in relation to a particular part, even if that doesn't necessarily apply to everything. Okay, I think we need to start wrapping this up. Um, but looking ahead into 2020, what developments, if any, would you like to see in the costs and which, which developments do you foresee in the coming year? Guideline alley rates situation is becoming intolerable um, for both sides of the fence, paying parties and receiving parties. We're now 10 years uh, beyond when they were set and there doesn't seem to be any great rush to amend them or update them. That, that I understand you had a you were in the employment tribunal well, yes. recently. I mean, well, yes. I mean, a week ago I was in the employment tribunal. We don't go there very often, and certainly not on dealing with costs. Um, and uh, the employment judge said, "I've got to tell you, I'm a great fan of guideline hourly rates," uh, which made um, me think, "Well, hang on a minute. You obviously haven't looked at the very recent decision in the TCC." in open operations and Invesco fund managers, uh, where the judge um, r really indicated a, a greater preference for market rates rather than guideline hourly rates and how those were now really rather out of date. It's certainly a good decision to carry around with you if you are the um, uh, receiving party, not so good uh, if you are the paying party. So I also think there will be further consideration and, and criticism perhaps of guideline hourly rates. We have to, I, I, I suspect solicitors will have to end up preparing expensive time calculations for assessments because the judges have to start somewhere and the guideline hourly rates, if they are so out of date. The trouble with the idea of market rates is will the judge have knowledge of market rates and will those market rates be challenged? It's, there's a difficulty that really can only be dealt with either by the solicitor's profession as a whole putting in the evidence, which they didn't do in 2014, or individual firms coming to the court armed with figures which justify the cost of doing the work and how much the cost has gone up since 2010.
Robin, I know you and I could uh, go on talking for a rather long time about costs, but uh, there's a limit to probably how uh, long people want to listen to us. Um, so I think we ought to uh, conclude there. Can I say that um, this particular Hardwick uh, podcast on the topic of uh, uh, costs uh, has been brought to you by uh, Hardwick, and we hope you found it interesting and useful. Um, I should say that details of the cases referred to in the podcast are available uh, on the website. You may like to subscribe to our podcast series by way of uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever podcast medium uh, you use. And you can, of course, find uh, a number of other podcasts as well as information uh, about Hardwick generally on our website, which is hardwick.co.uk. Thank you for listening and have a very happy and successful 2020. Hardwick is a barrister's chambers which specialises in legal advice and advocacy in the areas of clinical negligence and personal injury, commercial dispute resolution, construction, insolvency, insurance, private client, professional liability and property. This podcast is provided free of charge for information purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and should not be relied on as such. No responsibility for the accuracy and or correctness of the information and commentary or any consequences of relying on it is assumed or accepted by any member of Hardwick or by Hardwick as a whole.